0: Take out your Bibles and turn with me to our Old Testament reading, which will also be our sermon passage this morning as we conclude our series through the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. If you're using our Pew Bible, you can find that on page 984. Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11 page 984 in the Pew Bible. Before we hear God's Word read, let's first pray that He would give us His Spirit, that we might understand it and believe it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You that Your Word, which has been given to us as it has been committed wholly unto writing in the pages of Your Scripture, It's not a dead letter, but is alive. That in it we hear the voice of our God come to us day by day to speak to us your gospel. We do pray now that the spirit that you've put within us, that you, O Holy Spirit, would give us understanding, work in us faith and all of its fruits, that we would trust your word that we would obey it. We do ask these things in your one name, O God, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Now, if you'll turn to our New Testament reading in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, page 1,263, if you're using the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this is why I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith And truth. Man shall not live by bread alone. Over the last two months, the eyes of the world have been fixed on the Middle East. The war that erupted following the heinous acts of terrorism that Hamas committed on October 7th has not only captured our attention because of how appalling and barbaric their violence was, but also because of The anxieties that we have because we recognize the potential that there is in this conflict to draw other nations into it, including our own. The unprecedented terrorism of Hamas and the vigorous response of Israel and its invasion of Gaza has prompted a whole new generation of people to become acquainted now with what has been a very long, complicated, and bloody history between Israel and Palestine. It's also produced yet another issue over which the American populace has found itself vehemently polarized. In the raging sea of this polarization, I discovered an opinion piece this last week that struck me with its plea. This piece was written by a woman named Mauna Maroon. She's the Vice President and Dean of Research at the University of Haifa in Israel. And Dr. Maroon is not a Jew, rather, she's an Israeli Arab. And in the piece, she describes how difficult it is to be an Israeli Arab in this moment. She solidly lays the blame for everything that's happened in this crisis at the feet of Hamas. And yet, throughout the piece, she describes how agonized she is over what's happening to both sides of this conflict. She writes this, she says, every day I think about the many Gazan children crying out for their mothers, just as I can't stop picturing the Jewish children in Hamas captivity. For those captive Israeli and Palestinian children crying similarly out of fear, I ask, who is feeding them? Who hugs them when they cry? Who is telling them everything will be okay? And then she goes on to pen what is, I think, the most cutting and insightful sentence in her piece. She writes this, showing empathy... For one side in a conflict does not negate the capacity to have empathy for the other. Showing empathy for one side in a conflict does not negate the capacity to have empathy for the other. That's something that does not come naturally to us. It's natural for us instead to divide the world into neat categories of us versus them with our side, of course, always being the good guys. But the thing about the Bible is that it stubbornly resists human attempts to co-opt it into our polarized views of the world. And one of the many ways it does that is in the way it lays upon us what Dr. Maroon is writing about this sort of, this duty of empathy. The book of Jonah is itself one grand plea for such empathy. In its original setting, it is about a prophet of the northern kingdom, and Israel, and its tendency to splice up the world into categories of us versus them, And it takes those tendencies, and it reduces them to rubble. And in so doing, it continues to destroy the the easy, self-centered dichotomies God's people might be attempted to continue to adopt long after Jonah's day. Rather than asking us the question, is God on our side or not, the book of Jonah compels us to ask, Are we on God's side? Though the difference between those two questions may seem very subtle, it is vast. There is a world of difference between trying to co-opt God for our agendas and bending our knee before God's own agendas. The book of Jonah bids us to do the latter, to align our hearts with what God in his grace has determined to do in this world as he advances his redemption, sometimes in ways that even shines itself upon our hated enemies. So the truth I want you to see from Scripture this morning is this. Rejoice in the grace of Christ, which will gather his elect for the nations. Rejoice in the grace of Christ, which will gather his elect from the nations. Three points we'll consider. First, resenting God's grace. Second, a lesson in God's grace. And third, rejoicing in God's grace. Resenting God's grace, a lesson in God's grace, rejoicing in God's grace. So I'll speak with our first point, resenting God's grace. Reading what we saw last week in Jonah chapter 3, one might think that the prophet would be overjoyed. You would expect that if a preacher saw his sermons have such an effect to overturn one of the most wicked cities on the planet in a revival of repentance and faith, that the response to this would be happiness. However, as we've seen, the book of Jonah is a narrative that continuously presents us with the unexpected. And instead of elation over this miracle of repentance that happens in Nineveh, We open chapter 4, and we find rather that Jonah is livid. He is in the throes of a massive temper tantrum. And we read in verse 1 that it it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The language of that verse uses this classic Hebrew device, which intensifies actions by doubling up the same words. Hence the adverb there, exceedingly. But the translation displeased does not convey the full nuance of what Jonah does in his emotional reaction towards God's mercy to the Ninevites. Notice the footnote in the ESV. The Hebrew literally there is, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. Exceedingly evil. There's an irony here. If you go back and you look at why Jonah is sent on this mission to Nineveh in the first place, you read back in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, that God sends his prophet to this great city because, as he says, their evil has come up before me. It's the same Hebrew word. And If you look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, you will see that evil is precisely what the king of Nineveh instructs all of the citizens of Nineveh to leave behind, to turn from. Same Hebrew word. And then in chapter 3, verse 10, God sees them turn from this evil. Same Hebrew word. And that Hebrew word now describes Jonah's reaction to God's mercy toward Nineveh. In a sad twist of irony, the grace of God towards this city has turned into, as they've turned from their evil, which has come up before the Lord, now that grace is something that Jonah himself views as evil. And we finally see in verse 2 the reason Jonah ran from his call in the first place. He knew all along what God had planned, that he was going to show his mercy on this city. But what was it exactly that caused Jonah to have this kind of revulsion towards his call to go and to preach this message of repentance and God's mercy to this city? There's one mistake we should avoid here. It's common to think of Jonah as a reluctant prophet who doesn't want to fulfill his call because he's a xenophobe. You know, he's, a, he's a racist, a nationalistic Israelite who just hates Gentiles in general because they're strange and odd. But general racism is not Jonah's problem. It's not just that Jonah has a chip on his shoulder against all the different cultures outside of Israel. To understand Jonah's visceral reaction to his call to this particular city, we have to understand what Nineveh was. During Jonah's day, Nineveh was one of the most important cities of the Assyrian Empire, under the reign of King Sennacherib. After Jonah, it would become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Now, certainly, Jonah's mission as a prophet occurs before the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. But Assyria is still a rising power in the region. We already know from extra-biblical sources that Assyria had forced Jehu, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, to pay heavy tribute to him during his reign a few generations just before Noah, uh, jo- Jonah. Excuse me. And if you were to go read the book of Hosea, a prophet who ministers almost alongside of Jonah around the same time, the threat of the Assyrian exile is already being spoken by the prophets of the northern kingdom to Israel. It's already looming. And if we go and we understand something about Jonah himself, it sheds further light on why he's so reluctant to carry out this call to Nineveh. You go read Second Kings 14, and you find that Jonah is mentioned there as a prophet. And you find that he ministers during the reign of King Jeroboam II, and that Jonah had a very successful prophetic ministry in the northern kingdom. According to his prophetic word, the Lord came to the aid of Israel and restored her borders. As, she, as under the king, uh, she reconquered some of her territory from her neighbor's. But now, in the midst of Israel, as she is threatened and yet disobedient, the word of the Lord comes to this prophet, and instead of sending him to call to Israel to repent, and a call that would turn them and have them find God's mercy, the Lord sends this prophet to send this message of repentance and his mercy instead to one of the major cities of the great neighboring empire of Assyria. And this empire will prove to be what the prophet Isaiah says it will be in Isaiah 10, verse 5. Is Assyria will be the rod of the Lord's anger. With it, he will take up Assyria and he will smash Israel in his judgment. And the grotesque brutality of the Assyrian Empire had become the stuff of nightmarish legends in the ancient Near East. But Nineveh is not just the budding capital of, of one of the most vicious empires around Israel. The city is at the heart of this empire that is a growing menace to Israel. An empire that will eventually be the instrument of the Lord's judgment against Israel. To bring the northern kingdom to an end in its exile. Nineveh is at the heart of an empire that proves to be one of Israel's worst enemies ever. And with that in mind, we can begin to see something of the texture of Jonah's anger. This isn't just a general sort of resentment towards Gentiles. This is a resentment towards one's nemesis, towards a brutal enemy that was legendary in their wickedness. So Jonah acts in a way in verse 3 that it has this strange echo of something that if you've read through the Old Testament you've seen before already. After complaining about the mercy of the Lord in verse 3, he asks God just to take his life from him. And what Jonah's doing here has echoes of what the prophet Elijah did before him. Remember the story of Elijah as he is on the run from Jezebel. 1 Kings 19. She's trying to kill him. And in a heap of exhaustion, Elijah collapses, and he exclaims, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. What Jonah does is similar, but it's actually just a sad parody of what Elijah does. Both prophets ask the Lord to end their life because of the demands that have been placed upon them by their calling. But that's where the similarity ends. For Elijah, he asks for this because it seems like his prophetic mission is failing, that he has had no more success than his fathers have had. For Jonah, he asks for the Lord to kill him because his prophetic mission succeeds in a miracle of repentance that overturns an entire city. Elijah's plea for death comes out of a despair of ever seeing the Lord's purposes fulfilled. Jonah's plea for death comes because he sees the Lord's purposes fulfilled. But he cannot stand the fact that those purposes meant that the Lord would show his mercy to Israel's enemy. Jonah's resentment towards God reveals his inability to come to terms with what Jesus will later come and speak to his church. Luke 6, 27 through 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Before we rush to judge Jonah, we should search our own hearts. There are all manner of people in the world we've grown to hate. Deep-seated resentments have a tendency to build up even in the hearts of Christians. This can happen on large scales with groups of Christians who have faced corporate abuses from some other group. It can happen on an individual level with someone who has personally abused you whatever the situation, I'm sure that you can conjure up in your head a person or a whole group of people that you have learned to despise and perhaps for good reason. And if suddenly God, in his sovereign mercy, decided to bring that person or those people to himself and into the church, into this church, In this miracle of repentance, you might find yourself screaming, No! Not you! Anyone but you! And it's easy for us, then, to confess that God's sovereign mercy can save even the most vile of sinners when it's in the abstract, when it's a nice idea floating out there. But when it gets personal, it can unsettle us. When God decides to show his mercy to someone we've learned to hate, someone who has personally caused us suffering and misery, suddenly that abstract idea takes a face. And it can be easy for us to say in our hearts, Lord, I cannot stand to see you show the mercy of your gospel to that person, anyone but them. Suddenly, we're confronted by what it really means to worship a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, even at times to those we have been trained to despise. Jonah resents God's grace, but he is about to enter into the counseling session of a lifetime. That brings us to our second point a lesson in God's grace. Jonah pleads with God for him just to go ahead and kill him, verse 3. God responds to Jonah with a question, verse 4. And at first, Jonah does not answer it, at least not with words. Rather than opening his lips and responding to the Lord's question, we see in verse 5 that he goes outside of Nineveh, he finds a nice spot where he could view the city, and there he constructs for himself this makeshift shanty, where he can sit and wait. And we see at the end of verse 5 what he's waiting for. He wants to see what would become of the city. Jonah's still banking on God reversing his course. He's hoping against hope that the Lord would rain down his judgment on this city still. And as Jonah waits, the Lord arranges for his own object lesson for his prophet. We read in verse 6 that God appointed a plant to grow up and shade, Jonah. Notice again the verb choice. The Lord appointed a plant. As we've seen throughout this story, again, we see the same sovereignty that is, God has exhibited all throughout this narrative. The God who hurled a great wind upon the sea the god who sent the captain of the boat to rouse jonah from his sleep with an echo of his prophetic call the god who controlled the lot so that it fell on jonah the god who stilled the raging of the sea the god who appointed a great fish to swallow jonah then vomit him back up again and the god who turned the hearts of the ninevites with his word is now the god who appoints a plant to grow up over jonah And note well what the plant's purpose is in verse 6. It's not only to shade Jonah, but as the narrator goes on to say, to save him from his discomfort. Again, look at the footnote in the ESV. Literally, the Hebrew reads, to save Jonah from his evil. There's that word again. God is engineering an object lesson for Jonah to appreciate the very thing Jonah is resenting. This is a tutorial from the Lord meant to help Jonah understand what it means for God's mercy to save someone from evil. Now, exactly what sort of plant the Lord causes to grow is not known. For some reason, it vexes scholars. The the name of this plant in Hebrew is kikayon. We don't know exactly what a, a kikayon is, but since the name kikayon is fun to say, and I don't get to say kikayon very often, you can accept, expect me to say kikayon as many times as I can in the space of this sermon on the only passage in Scripture that has the word kikayon. <laughs> this kikayon plant pleases Jonah, but in verse seven we we see the sovereignty of the Lord, who appointed the plant, appoints something else as well. He appoints a worm to come and to kill the Kikayon plant. Jonah has no pesticides handy, and so his nice Kikayon dies. And then we see God's next appointment in verse 8. Jonah is now molested by a scorching wind from the east. Now, this is an oppressive wind. It still comes today, sweeping out of the mountains of Iran, sometimes reaching up to 60 miles per hour. And it rushes down on Jonah in the middle of the desert and the sun beats upon his head. And there we find our pouting prophet again in verse 80 repeats, it's better for me to die than live. Jonah's kikayon has died and now he wants to as well. And again, God puts a question to Jonah, "Do do you do well to be angry for the plant? And this time, rather than storming off in silence, Jonah answers. And he has the temerity to spill out of his heart to the Lord the pettiness that resides in him. The prophet declares, yes! Yes, I do well to do be angry, angry enough to die. And now the Lord has Jonah where he needs him to be. If Jonah is going to see something of the nature of God's grace the Lord responds to him in verse 10 and forces him to see something about this plant that ought to put Jonah's indignation in check. He draws Jonah's attention to the fact that he did not labor for this plant, nor did he make it grow. The plant was provided to Jonah as a pure act of God's grace. It was given gratis. It grew up spontaneously without Jonah doing anything To labor for it or to merit it. And the blessing of the Kikayon plant and how it saved Jonah from his evil was provided to him out of the sheer gratuity of the Lord. And therefore, when the Lord deemed to take it away in the middle of Jonah's petulant entitlement, the prophet had no real grounds to be angry. How can one be justified in anger about the loss of something they did nothing to earn, that they did not merit. And it's here that the crux of the Lord's cross-examination of Jonah forces upon Israel as a reader of Jonah to consider something about themselves. And remember what I said, that Jonah functions as a kind of placeholder for the nation as a whole. He's a type of Israel. And as Israel stands on the eve of her exile, careening into God's judgment, Jonah shows her something about herself as she is on the precipice of an exile, an exile that will be caused by the hands of the the very empire Jonah is sent to preach to. And what Israel needed to understand was that the covenant privilege, which was about to be taken from her in her exile, that it was a blessing that grew up much like the plant around Jonah's head. Israel did not labor to obtain the land of promise, nor her covenant relationship with God in it. It was given to her out of grace, She did nothing in her works to earn it she had experienced the salvation of the lord and his blessing gratis out of the lord's gratuity and what the lord had given to israel in his sovereign grace he had the right to revoke in his sovereign judgment yet the lord also had the right to show to nineveh that same sovereign grace to this nation of Assyria and its its great city, the same grace that Israel had experienced. And as Brian Estelle argues in verse 11, that it would be much better translated not as should I not pity Nineveh, but rather as may I not pity Nineveh? Because the question is not whether the Lord has some obligation to pity anything or anyone but that he has the freedom to do so, if he determines to pursue that course of action in his sovereignty. As Estelle writes, Jonah had no right even over the plant. God had every right to exercise pity over the plant, the city, the people of Nineveh, and Jonah himself. Nothing falls out of God's jurisdiction. Jonah must recognize the absolute sovereignty and freedom of God to act as he pleases. Estelle's summary is very apt, and here in the close of the book, we're faced again with what I've said is basically the thesis statement of the book of Jonah. The thesis statement for the book of Jonah you can find back in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. And Jonah now is coming face to face with what he himself confessed out of the belly of the great fish. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The book of Jonah is a living parable of the great truth that the Lord declares to Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is at the heart of who Yahweh is as the covenant Lord of Israel. Indeed, there's something of that reality communicated in what Jonah confesses, even in his anger to the Lord. Back up in verse 2, Jonah says "Therefore, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's a direct quote from what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 34. Remember in Exodus 34, Israel has rebelled against the Lord and constructed a golden calf. And Moses comes to plead with the Lord that he would relent from his anger. And the Lord does so. He determines not to destroy Israel and their disobedience. And he proclaims this very thing about himself, that he is a gracious God and merciful, slow to wrath and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah recognizes here that the God who is this for Israel is also the God who is free to be this unto the Gentiles, indeed, unto one of their most hated enemies, and its capital city, Nineveh. The Lord will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. And the question is whether or not we will align our hearts with his purposes. And that brings us to our third point, rejoicing in God's grace. The book of Jonah is unique in many ways. One way is in how it ends. It leaves you hanging, does it not? You read verse 11 and you want to know, well, what happened? What did Jonah say? What did he do? The Lord puts this question to Jonah and then it's just as though the, as like the channel cuts out and you miss the punchline. And the ending of the story. But the book of Jonah is quite masterful as a piece of literature. We've seen that in many subtle ways as we've moved through it. But one of the many ways it's masterful is the way it ends. This book ends with a question. Think about that. It ends with a question. And it ends not just with any question. It ends with a question from God. And so if you're reading this story about Jonah, and all along the way you're thinking, who is this ridiculous prophet? Doesn't he have any sense? This book pulls you up short in its ending. Because in ending with a question, it's actually asking you this question. May the Lord have pity on this great seething crowd of wicked sinners in Nineveh. question punctuates the story, and thus it's a question that's not only put to Jonah, but put to any reader of the book of Jonah. May the Lord not have mercy on Nineveh. And this is a difficult question. It's difficult to contemplate when we actually stop and think about who Nineveh was and what it represents. One commentator dodges that. Seems to load down the story of Jonah with a a Marxist kind of meaning, calling it a subversive drama that stirs a vision of hope for the community stripped of power and meaning. That's a tempting reading, perhaps, because it certainly is a common theme in scriptures. The Lord shows his compassion and his mercy to the downcast and to the powerless, to, to the weak and to the oppressed. But the problem with that reading of the book of Jonah, however, is that this is a story about God having mercy. On an imperial power. That's Jonah's beef with God. The Lord showing mercy to the wicked oppressor of Israel, turning them from their sin and bringing to them his salvation. What do we do when God's mercy is shown? Not to those with whom it is easy for us to sympathize, the poor and the oppressed but to those with whom it is difficult to sympathize. The powerful oppressor, the hated enemy. You see, the book of Jonah resists our attempts to shoehorn it into the easy categorizations of our polarized landscape. This book critiques not only the kind of hatreds that are fostered by a chauvinistic kind of nationalism, it also critiques the hatreds of Marxism and the critical theories it spawned. It's a book which asks us to have empathy which follows the Lord's own empathy as the God who is merciful to those whom we would much rather see him judge. As I said at the beginning, rather than asking us the question is God on our side, the book of Jonah compels us to ask instead are are we on God's side? It resists our attempts to enlist God in the us and them of our entrenched resentments. And it asks us to align our hearts with what God in his grace has determined to do in the world as he advances his redemption in ways that sometimes even shines itself upon our hated enemies. It bids us to have imaginations that are broad enough to have the empathy that the Lord has to pity those whom he pities. And if we're going to do that, then what we need to do is we need to come to terms with the lesson that the Lord sought to teach Jonah about his grace. Rejoicing in the grace of Christ towards others requires us to come to terms with our own sin and just how undeserving we are of God's love. It calls us out of our simplistic ways of framing the world, which sorts everything into the categories of us as the good guys, them as the bad guys. And as one commentator puts it, the bottom line is this we and our enemies need grace and mercy. That playing field is level. Like Jonah, we have been delivered and forgiven. We must guard from begrudging that grace to others and instead be vessels that extend it freely. The key for us to have compassion on our enemies is for us to step back and to realize that in our natural state, in our sinful rebellion, we were God's enemies. However much we can legitimately claim to have been abused and mistreated by others, the truth is that we've dished out our own share of abuse and mistreatment. One can be an abuser and abused at the same time. The two things are not mutually exclusive. But just because we've experienced some form of oppression does not automatically put us into the category of the good guys. The truth is that we all need the grace of the Lord. We do as much as our enemies. The gospel transforms us then into the kind of people who, unlike Jonah, do not sulk At the mercy of God, when He shows that mercy to our enemies, all the while forgetting how we have received such mercy. Rather, the gospel calls us to say, along with Paul, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And from that vantage point, we'll have the vision that we need to rejoice in the free grace of God as he lavishes it upon whomever he wills to lavish it, even at times our hated enemies. As someone has once put it, the Apostle Paul entered heaven to the cheers of those he martyred, because that's how the gospel works rather than carve up the world into the categories of us and them the gospel bids us that we recognize that we're we are all them all of us we are all alienated from god in the natural state of our sin and the only way out of that category is through the blood of christ the blood that you need as much as your adversary The gospel thus supplies us with every resource that we need to imitate the empathy of our God who shows us compassion even to the most wicked of sinners. And when we've learned what it means to rejoice in that grace for ourselves, to understand that grace as something that comes to us despite every wretched thing about ourselves, despite every reason for that grace to not be shown to us, when we know ourselves to be the chief of sinners, then we'll rejoice in God's grace, not only as it's shown to us, but as it's shown to everyone who stands alongside us in the one new man that he's created in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the grace of Christ, which will gather his elect from the nations. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we know and we confess that it is not our innate inclination to do this. Our hearts are not wired to love our enemies, to rejoice in your grace as it's given to them as well as to us. We are so often like Jonah. We want mercy for ourselves but we resent it as it's given to others. Oh God, would you free us of this perverseness of heart and instead would you give us your own empathy that we would rejoice in your grace wherever we see it lavished as you dispense it in your sovereignty. As we long for the day when we gather with your innumerable elect, when we will stand side by side, even with those who, at times, we've learned to hate. And we will sing the praises of your grace for all eternity. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.